Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 131. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. We are here this week to discuss a film that neither one of us had ever seen before. But it is celebrating its 10-year anniversary, so we figured, why not? Now's as good a time as any. So, yeah, Mars Needs Moms. It's celebrating an anniversary, like you said, the 10th, this upcoming Thursday. You and I have been together for far more than 10 years. We've been going to Disney parks together for now it has been 10 years. But we, like, it's, it's not like our love for Disney wasn't there from the start. I have to be honest with you, I don't even remember this movie coming out. I don't remember it coming out. I do remember the title, though, and I think that's because it was a book adaptation. And I think in my mind, I thought it was kind of like a kid's book or a YA, and that wasn't why I was like running out to see it when it dropped. This, I, I thought, was a Disney Channel movie. When we saw that this was celebrating a 10th anniversary, I was thinking... This is like Smart House or, I don't know, Mr. Boogity, something that was on the wonderful world of Disney or on the Disney Channel. I, honest to God, had no idea that this movie saw a theatrical release or that it had the enormous budget that it had. I mean, this was this was a tremendous undertaking. And a really good cast, too. A really good cast. How did it do in theaters? We're going to discuss in a little while. First, I want to jump right into the plot of Mars Needs Moms. And this episode, like so many others, is brought to you by our friends over at Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms and more. Listeners of Monoreal get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Instagram and their Etsy shop and search for Hidden Mickey Supply Co. for all of your straw charm needs. We see that Mars Martians are living underground, and while they are a sophisticated species, they make for terrible mothers. So in order to raise their young properly, they steal mothers from the planet Earth. Back on Earth, we meet the rebellious Milo and his straight-laced mother. After agreeing to eat his broccoli in exchange for a movie on pay-per-view, Milo feeds the broccoli to the family cat, causing it to get sick. His mom punishes him, and when she says her life would be better if she didn't have to be a nagging mom, he tells her his life would be easier without her in it. When he goes to apologize, he sees her get abducted by aliens and stows away on the ship in an attempt to save her. On Mars, the aliens separate Milo from his mom, but he escapes from his pod and slides down a trash chute, thanks in part to Gribble, another human who is living on Mars. Apparently, he's been there for a long time. We learn that when the Martians abduct a mom, they put said mom's memory, order, and discipline into the nanny bots that are being built to raise their hatchlings. After that, the moms are terminated, and Milo has less than seven hours to save her. Gribble disguises Milo as an alien and sends him up to, quote-unquote, help find his mom. This is all a ploy to play the hero and scare Milo into staying with him permanently because he knows Milo's going to get caught. We learn that the supervisor oversees this entire operation, 
and that someone is painting colorful tags all over the place, infuriating the supervisor. It's basically just flowery graffiti. Milo is captured, and the cis tracks Gribble down. The cis uh, basically are the armed guards, police, henchmen, whatever you want to call it, of the supervisor. Milo escapes and meets Key, the rebellious Martian stuck in the 1960s who is painting the tags everywhere. Milo returns to Gribbles and finds that it has been destroyed. He finds that Gribbles' name is George Ribble and that he was a stowaway himself on the ship because obviously Gribble went through the same thing that Milo did in having his mom abducted. Gribble is brought in front of a firing squad, but is saved by Milo and Key. We learn that the Martians chose Gribble's mom because because Gribble was a good kid, and he actually saw his mother's extraction and termination. So he vows to help save Milo's mom because he doesn't want Milo to go through the same thing that he did. Key arrives again, and they discover a mural from the past showing that Mars used to have parents, but the supervisor lied and told them that they always had nanny bots. We later learn that she banished the males because they were too whimsical, they were too clowny, and she wanted law and order, so to speak. In order to get them close enough to the extraction room, Key quote-unquote, arrests Milo and Gribble, and they take over the silo where all of the mission control is being held. We also see that the male hatchlings are getting separated basically at birth from the females and that they are being sent down the trash chutes and only the females are being handed off to the nanny bots. It's kind of a Jurassic Park thing going on here, but, but in two very different ways. Just as the sun is rising and the sun is what powers the extraction machine, Gribble and Milo get to the extraction machine. Milo saves his mom while Gribble leaves to fend off the cis. The tribe of males also show up from the trash chutes to fight the cis and destroy the nanny bots. Key, meanwhile, accidentally initiates the launch system for the escape ship back to Earth. As they make their way to the ship, the supervisor fires a laser upon Milo and his mother, and Milo's oxygen helmet is shattered. His mother gives him hers, seemingly sacrificing herself. Gribble then finds the helmet that he had meant for his own mother and uses it to save Milo's mom. Key exposes the supervisor and her lies, and the sis turns against her and captures her. They return to Earth, but Gribble decides to return to Mars with Key, but he promises to keep in touch. So, sounds like there's a lot going on here, which is pretty impressive because other than Earth... Mars has like two settings. Yes. But they managed to craft a very interesting story woven between these two settings. You know, it's not like it's not like a panic room where it sort of plays out in real time where you're you think it's going to be boring because right. it's only taking place in one airtight room. Correct. So, let's go right to the beginning of the movie. We have the moms getting abducted from Earth. We don't know why this is happening. We assume this is going to get fleshed out as the movie goes on. But what we do see is this stop-motion capture animation. Now, at times, 
it's really, really good. You know, they have the sensors on the actors and actresses' faces. And then sometimes it just looks like The Sims. And I don't know about you, but when this happens in the first few minutes of the movie, at least the first time we watched it, I didn't know what to make of it, and it sort of took me out of it a little bit. Yeah, it almost lost me from the beginning because the animation looked so, I don't want to say cheap because it's not, but compared to Mars, Earth almost looks like it's not even rendered down properly. Um, and you're right. It does look very much like The Sims, especially because the whole setup is that she's trying to get Milo. The the mom is trying to get Milo to help her with chores. So all I could think of is when The Sims, you know, finish eating and then they drop their plate on the floor and then they're just waving their arms around. So that kind of took me out of it a little bit at first. But what I will say, I think they did a good job. I think it was a very smart choice to start with acquiring the target. And it establishes that there are Martians, so it sets up immediate danger. Otherwise, I feel like we would have, aside from the animation, lost interest very quickly because they do an excellent job of setting Milo up to be a brat. And that yeah. would have lost me if I didn't know everything was about to get flipped on its head. Well, and that's, that's I think... Here's the thing. I'm ju- I'm going to say this right now and I it will bear repeating at the end of the episode. I think in order for you as a viewer to have a fair analysis of this movie, you can't just watch it once. I think this is a movie that has to get watched a few times because this kid Milo upon first viewing is way too obnoxious to be likable. Right. So you're right they set the stakes and it flips itself on its head five minutes later. But that only works if you've seen the movie more than once. Well, I think it works by, by showing them acquiring the mothers first, because you know, something else is coming. If they would have just started us in the home, seeing this bratty kid who can't even handle taking out the trash to the end of the walkway, it would have lost me and I wouldn't have been able to stand Milo for more than those five minutes. Here's the problem I have with that, though. Upon first viewing, okay? Because, I mean, think about it. How many times do you watch a movie once and determine, yes, I want to see this again. No, I never want to watch this again. Like, if we did not have this podcast, I would have watched this movie once because I would have said, oh, what's this? And I never would have seen it. I never would have watched it again. We watched it a second time out of necessity because we have this show. Most people aren't going to watch a movie and dislike it because, admittedly, the first time we watched this, I really didn't like it at all, and I'll, I'll tie this up in a second. Most people are going to watch a movie, and if they didn't like it, they're never going to watch it again. And they may give it an unfair analysis. Because, quite frankly, you know the mom is going to get captured and you're going to follow Milo for the entire film as he tries to get her back. So if you don't feel bad for him and you only feel bad for the mom, what what emotional investment do I have in this character? You, you get what I'm saying? So, so on a first viewing, if I'm not connecting with this kid and ultimately that's what they want you to do, there's not going to be much of an incentive for me to come back and watch a second time. 
Right, because we need a reason to root for him. For all intents and purposes, this is a hero's journey film, and our hero is completely unlikable. Aside from, you know, what ultimately really triggers the fight between him and his mother, I mean, he doesn't want to do his chores. Okay, fine. He doesn't want to eat broccoli. What kid does? But then he feeds it to the cat. That was a pretty bad move. And... You know, obviously the cat gets sick and the scene where the mom busts him for it is actually pretty funny because there's a little bit of a back and forth. And she's like, how could you feed that to the cat? It's poison. And he's like, well, if it's poison, why are you trying to feed it to me? Yes. That's the one moment where he's likable because I thought that was as smart alecky as it is. It's a very funny line, uh, but it's a fair point. Um, but still, I, I thought it was wrong to go after the animal and then when he's sitting there feeling sorry for himself what does he do he talks to his cat about how bad he feels i mean i give the kid credit for not realizing that broccoli could poison a cat and you're right no you should know if you have a pet you should know what's going to be bad for it i yeah but what is he 11 years old maybe 12 I, I, so if he had a dog and he was like here chocolate's great why don't you have some no 11 is old enough to know better I'm just saying, of all of the egregious things that this little punk does in the first five <laughs> minutes of the movie, that is the one that, for me, is the most forgivable because I don't think there was any real malice involved. What I dislike more, and where I really start to to not feel sorry for this kid, and I, I don't want to say I want him to fail because I feel bad for the mom. I wanted to smack him. Yeah, is when she sends him to his room... And she says, go to bed. And she's upstairs later, and she hears him jumping on the bed. And she says, well, what are you doing? I said, you said, well, come upstairs, go go to bed. You never said get into bed or go to sleep. He, this And now at this point in 2011, this is kind of that, we, we've mentioned it before, the all-knowing 90s child quip machine. And I kind of felt like that's what they were going for. You know, I'm a kid, that's my job. It, it sort of reminded me of that scene from Uncle Buck, but not at all endearing. Um, and I felt like that was, this kid is just asking for trouble. He knows what she meant when she said go to bed. He would be a great attorney, by the way. But he knew exactly what she meant, and he's just trying to be a smart aleck about it. And he continues to, like, argue his point with her. Kid, you almost killed the family pet. You already lied about not finishing your dinner so that you could watch this movie. How much hot water is too much? When is the temperature too hot for you? See, I disagree because I do like this scene, even though he is being a total brat. What they do effectively is the go to your room trope, because that's something that is going to have to get phased out or was starting to be phased out at this point. Because now you tell a kid to go to their room and what's in their room, their TV, their video games. Yeah, they're like when we were kids, it was a punishment because we oh, didn't yeah. have any of those things. We didn't have cell phones. So you went to your room and you stared at the wall. And then, like, your parents would come back to check and make sure that you weren't reading a book or, or doing anything else. Like, you just had to sit there and think about what you did. Now, that's never going to happen with all of the technology. Now you'd have to take the phone away to make it a real punishment. So I think that that might be something for kids to have difficulty relating to. But they didn't even try to tiptoe into that area because he doesn't have anything in his room. He doesn't have a TV. There's no video games. He's just 
jumping on the bed. So I can see where that annoys you, but I think that there's a little bit of a payoff in that they didn't default to, well, I'm going to sit here and play my video games now. Right. I mean, ultimately, the entire thing is to lead up to the mom out of frustration saying, my life would be a lot easier if I didn't have to be a nagging mother. You know, fine. I I mean, as a kid growing up, I used to hear things like that. Not that I caused as much. I did not cause as much trouble for my parents in the 18 years I lived under their roof than this kid caused his mother in five minutes in this movie. So I understand you had to lead up to that so that he could respond with, my life would be a lot easier if I didn't have a mother. And quite honestly, I know that you needed a payoff on the argument, but it doesn't serve the character well. It just continues to make him so dislikable. And knowing I'm supposed to root for him for the, for the rest of the film, I mean, you've got another hour and 25 minutes where he's supposed to be my hero, and upon first viewing, I just don't buy into him. Right. What I do like about that scene, though, too, is that they were very careful, as annoying as he is, they were very careful with what the mother is saying in this argument. And it wasn't just, I don't want to be your mom. Well, I don't want to be your kid. She said, I don't, my life would be much easier if I didn't have to be the nagging mom. So in other words, it was like, don't put me in that role. Don't make me, don't make me out to be the monster here. Because I think that anything else, like, I don't anything along the lines of, I don't want to be your mother or I wish you were my kid. That's way too harsh. And a parent, unless they were driven to breaking point would never ever say that so yeah for her I think it worked but for Milo you're absolutely right it knocks him down another peg and by this point you know what's about to happen and and you know that this is the note they're going to leave things off on so it's like am I supposed to feel bad for you now that your mom is being taken What I think would have been more effective, too, if, you know, he was trying to apologize. Obviously, he follows her out to the to the spaceship. I think I would have appreciated more if he snuck on board the ship to try and save her. Like we eventually learn that Gribble does here. He's like, no, don't take her. Don't take her. And then his hoodie gets caught up on the ship. And he's like, no, don't take me. So again, now you're down another peg as far as being likable. Yeah, you're sort of you're sort of a hero by accident. When that ship takes off, he's standing right next to the booster. He would have been incinerated. I'll look past that. But Well, I, at this point, that's what you're hoping for. I'm kind of hoping for it because I want to touch on something you mentioned, uh, and, and then we're going to move on. You talk about how well they played that scene off with the mom, where they're very careful about the way that she words it. And I completely agree with you. And I'm only realizing now, thinking back on films where they had the parent blow up out of frustration, the one movie that keeps coming to mind is Jersey Girl. When Ben Affleck... Oh, good one. And I, I'll, censor the, uh, I'll censor the language because it's very harsh but he looks at his daughter and for those who haven't seen the movie he's a single parent because he lost his wife played by JLo um he loses her in childbirth right and he looks at her and he says my life would have been better 
if you and your mother had never come into it? No, you, because that was the thing. They they had like all the he was in the music industry and they had all the fancy parties. And they, and he had the, the blow up at the Will Smith party, I think. Right. Wasn't exactly. that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the point is, it was so harsh that I remember like my heart fell into my stomach because she's like seven years old. She's very young in that movie. And Raquel Caruso was just so stinking cute in that movie. But yeah, no, it's the thing that you don't say. Which, by the way, if you're not a Kevin Smith fan and you think you don't like Kevin Smith movies, go and watch Jersey Girl. I promise you will change your mind. It's so different from all of his other films. But that, I think, for me, when I compare two scenes that that sort of accomplish the same thing but do it in two totally different ways, I actually think in this case this movie does do it better. But... Now we're on the ship. For that reason, because For, she didn't go too far. Yeah, yeah exactly. No, I, agree. I agree. So we're back on the ship. The accidental hero has been brought on board. We get to Mars. I really like the fact that the Martians are hiding underground because they've already teased at the beginning of the film that NASA has sent the Mars rover. So I love the fact that even though this is their planet, they are still living in hiding and they don't want to be seen by humans. Right. And this was something I didn't catch on first viewing. I think this is also why, and maybe they, they should have highlighted it just a touch more, that this is why the supervisor is doing what she's doing and not just putting the males underground. The males are underground at a sub-level. She's keeping, the. she's basically military militarizing the females yeah. for protection because she knows that this is eventually what's going to happen and the planet is at stake. So she's trying to set all of this up so that they can remain in hiding. And again, this does not get fleshed out very clearly. So unless you've seen the movie more than once... You're not going to get any of that. No, at face value, it's just that she's separating. She's she's using the males for breeding, and that's pretty much it. Right, but 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 no reason why she's separating. No reason why the the being underground thing. That's fine, but they never get into exactly why she separates them. Her saying all the men want to do is dance. It's like I'm. That's a weak motivation. That's not enough of a reason to separate them. But you're right. It's it. They never come out and say it. It's kind of just what you piece together over multiple viewings. Right. Otherwise, she's just coming off as power hungry. Exactly. So it is a good added layer. It's just you got to have your eyes wide open for it. Right. Something that you, I mean, keep your eyes wide open, this outer space animation. This is some of the best animation that we have ever seen in a Disney film. Ranked. It begged the question what would Pixar have done with this one I don't feel like this is enough of an emotional story for Pixar because spoiler alert the mom lives they would have had to kill her off to give us the the emotional pang of a Pixar movie yeah but um yeah it was just absolutely incredible one thing I wish they would have done, and it starts in the very beginning here once we get to Mars, and it does carry through the rest of the film. The Martians are speaking. It's kind of like uh, Mars Attacks, where it's ack, 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 ack. You know, it's kind of just that. It's it's really just noise. I kind of wish it was more sim-like. I, 
I we needed captions. There's no captions. I know eventually they put the helmet on so that their language gets translated, but for the first 10 to 15 minutes that you're on Mars, all you get is them making noise, and I guess it's supposed to you're supposed to just assume what's happening. But I, I don't want you to just assume I've seen a million space movies and I can figure this out on my own. See, I don't think so, because really most of the dialogue is that the supervisor is barking out orders. So I don't think you really need to understand what she's telling them to do. Uh, but, but, but why? Because I've seen a million space movies? I will I will give you this. I think the visual if if you're not going to be able to understand dialogue, the visuals need to be a lot stronger and you need to rely more heavily on them. We've only seen this movie twice, so I don't exactly recall, but I think in the scene that you're talking about, they relied heavily on wide shots to show how many of the cysts there are. So if they had maybe peppered in a couple more close-ups there would have been a bit more exposition there. I think the other thing is, as I've pointed out at nauseum, what's happening? I don't know what's going on. You don't know why any of this is happening. So to, to be on this alien planet, to have watched the mom be abducted, and the only thing that we know is Mars Needs Moms because that's the name of the movie, I just, I needed a little bit of direction. They flesh it out eventually, but there's just a lot of questions that need to be answered that aren't being answered initially. Right. Um, now, Milo is separated from his mom. He breaks out of his pod. Gribble opens up a trash chute. He goes down it, which is a little derivative because you've seen this happen in Star Wars. But it happens. He goes down to the sub-level, and that's where... It turns out these are the males. We don't know what they are at first. They're all wearing tie-dye. They have dreadlocks. They're wearing makeup. They're a very interesting-looking group. And this scene, and even through the second viewing, this scene had the potential to be very funny because they obviously don't speak English. And Milo is trying to explain to them who he is, what he needs, who he's come to get. But this whole, quote-unquote, my mom scene, it's way too long and it's way too played out. Because he's like, my mom, you know, she makes my bed. You know, my mom, she takes me to Disneyland. You know, my mom, she she cooks for me. You know, my mom, she does my laundry. You know, my mom, she vacuums. If you're getting tired of hearing me do this, this is basically what happens in the film. I mean, he basically laundry lists every task that a mother can have. One, two, don't do more than three, we get it. But it just goes on and on and on. I will agree with you that it's long, but I think it is very effective because it happens twice. Once where he's being led by two of the henchwomen I, is it to the cell or is it when he when he bucks them off? I can't really remember. It's when he bucks them off. Right. Um, and exactly, he laundry lists at, at face value things that she does for him, like chores. Then when he gets down to the garbage chute, which, by the way, Ma Mars Needs Moms and recycling 
there is a lot of trash down there and they're just burning it. Yeah. And it's it's terrible. I mean, how are we ever going to take over the planet when all of the resources are gone and it's just a pile of trash? Yeah, come on. Be better. So that we can take it from you. Anyway, um, so by the time he meets the males, now it's the second time that he's doing this. And they try to add a little bit more comedy by having him mime out these chores. But I think it is very effective for the character because... Again, it's just on face value. It's not until he meets Key and he explains the other things that she does to care for him and it finally dawns on him that that's what love is and that's his mom's biggest job. That's Milo's big aha moment. So even though these other two scenes where he's laundry listing sort of drag on, I think you definitely need them. You know what we definitely need and what we got? Gribble. And all of his 80s references. I think this is understated for people. Because you have an adult, a grown man, clearly he's middle-aged, and he's on this planet. And you don't know why or how he is there. You don't know if he's an astronaut that got abducted, if he was a human that was taken by mistake, whether they went for a mom and they took him, you don't know what it is. So when he starts in with Reagan sent me, Top Gun, it's a communist ploy, this is why they call it the Red Planet, which is a very funny line within itself. I love that they do this because what it does is it's immediate character development. Yep. You know right away he has been there for a long time. He's out of touch with reality, but it establishes that he has been there since childhood. They don't even need to tell you that. I love this touch and what they did with this here. Same. He is such a great character. I mean, every Hero's Journey movie has that mentor. So you know you're going to get some sort of guide to help Milo through this, but the genius of Gribble is that Yes, he he is stuck in the 80s and he kind of reminds me in a way of Alan Parrish when he jumps back yes. out of Jumanji because he he know what he knew what the world was when he left it and he's just been trying to survive. So now you figure what 20 30 years have passed for Gribble. That's all he knew of Earth. He's stuck here and he's just trying to get by and he's made it work. But he doesn't know how things have evolved. I think I think it's 25 years. Because if memory serves me, Top Gun came out in 86. They came out this came out in 2011. So it would have been 25 years that he was there. I I think is the So they kind of put a time stamp on it, but I think that's what they were going for without directly saying he had been there for 25 years. Cause I don't think he, I think he has lost track of time, honestly. Oh, absolutely. That's a good observation though. I was just going by his, his uh, graying beard and his, the size of his gut and yeah. making an assumption. No, I, th I think they, I think they indirectly imply that he's been there 25 years. That's my guess. Well, regardless, Gribble is probably my favorite part of this movie. He is. And we'll get more into him as a character, not story-wise, but as a character, we'll get into him a little bit more later. Because now we meet 
key. Well, no, you know what? I don't want to go to key yet. I want to go basically to the next scene where Gribble sets up Milo to be captured because you like Gribble, but you don't know if you can necessarily trust him yet. There's a brief moment where I was like, oh, is he orchestrating all of this? Is the supervisor answering to him that he's the human on the planet? There was a very, very brief moment where I thought he could go villain. Yeah. But that gets squashed right away. It gets squashed right away. I love the fact, though, that he does set him up to be captured so that he can play the hero and say, because he's got this mechanical pet, I don't know, cat, I think he was calling it. I, I, I couldn't understand what he was calling it because he kind of says it under his breath a lot. Yeah, I thought it was Toucan at one point. I don't know what it was. But anyway, it's well, just call it a mechanical cat. He turns to it and he says, now he'll never leave me. And yeah, that's where you kind of wonder, is he a hero? Is he a villain? Because even in that line, you don't know whether he's just lonely or whether he's a control freak. Right. And I thought that sending Milo up, almost setting him up to fail just so he could be the hero was kind of a weird motivation. But then once you realize that you know, he's built up this whole world for himself and he is a survivor, but he's very lonely. That's really all he wants is Milo's companionship. Right. Compounded with the fact that you've put two and two together, that he is a child that has grown up, but like he's an adult by age, but he hasn't truly grown up and he's still seeking friendship. I mean, think about being 25 years by yourself from the age of, say, 13 or 14 years old on an alien planet living in garbage. I mean, I can't imagine what that must be like. So while it it while it raises a lot of questions initially, it kind of answers them just as fast, which I really like about this scene. Right. No, and it's like you said, it develops him so fast and and you know that he's made the best of the situation even though all he has for companionship are the males who he can't really talk to. The only question that I really had is what is he doing for water? Because you need that to survive, but everything else it's kind of it's kind of just a given that he's figured out food and shelter and protection and all of that. What I'm realizing now too about the companionship as we're talking about it is it's it speaks to Gribble's character that he also kind of knows that Milo's not going to be able to get his mom back. And I think that's also part of him wanting to sort of take him under his wing. Right. I mean, to the point where he has, I'm not going to call it a Swiss family treehouse, but he has sort of built this home out of things that he he's kind of just like found broken pieces of metal, broken chairs, and he's he's just built whatever he could, you know, with whatever it is that he can find. And he already went out of his way to build a second room, knowing someday he was going to have a companion. So he knows what's going to happen. You're right. And That's he knows a great point, he yeah. knows that if another kid comes, they're not gonna get off this planet. Right. Certainly not with their moms intact. Right. And he's got the other um the gravity belt yes. to ground him. That's all ready to go. Yeah. So he's been expecting this for a long time. So now we meet Key, because as this escape happens, Key accidentally runs into Milo as she's leaving more of this flower graffiti all over the place. And I love her backstory where 
she was an administration employee that was drawn into basically is and it's so it's so fitting right now because WandaVision started a few weeks ago. Really, it's been a few months at this point. Thinking about the beginning of WandaVision and now watching this with the 60s sitcom and the 60s yes. television, it's so timely right now. But I love that this is what she grabbed onto. I love that she's fallen in love with this idea of flower power. She's taking it quite literally. But her dialogue is straight out of the 60s because this is how she learned English. And I I thought it was a really interesting way to get a big-time splash of color in an otherwise mechanical setting. She is such a great character because not only is she putting the splash of color in symbolically, she's exposing what the bigger picture is. Because now here's where you're starting to get more information about what the supervisor's doing. And this is where, you know, we were talking about it earlier. I just wish they had connected the dots a little bit more where, you know, you're you're exposing her that she's separating the males and the females, but just connect it back to protecting against the human race invasion. Correct. You know, it's like now it's it's in this scene that they connect Milo with the oh, my mother loves me. And it's it's more than just the chores. So a lot of good goes into this scene. But you're right. There are just some things that I think they could have pieced together a little bit better before we got to this point. Because, again, upon first viewing, there are just so many questions. And it's not even that the film is that convoluted. They just really haven't answered an awful lot up to this point. Here's where it does start to get a bit convoluted, but they do pay it off. Milo has to escape again. So what happens? Down the trash chute, back to the garbage pile he goes, and now he realizes that he Gribble had given him a communication device. They've since been cut off. Gribble has been captured, and now he discovers that Gribble's home is empty, so he knows that something bad happened to him. Um, This is also where he discovers that Gribble is George Ribble and he finds a time capsule of the last of his earthly possessions. Um, I thought that was so interesting that on Gribble's T-shirt, the tag read George Ribble and it just got folded. And I just thought it was so interesting that he's assimilated to this new life so much that he's lost his attachment to earth and he doesn't even have his identity really anymore he's not even going by his given name i know and the gribble story gets sadder and sadder and sadder i love that they did this i love that milo finds this time capsule and i love that as milo is trying to get gribble to help him because Gribble has no interest and he's like it's too late it's too late it's too late and he says George and Gribble stops and he goes what did you just call me and he he gets so upset that he has this t-shirt and you find out that you know because you, you know that he's there so you just assume that oh the same thing happened to Gribble that happened to Milo but Gribble's still there and he doesn't have his mom like it's it's implied and you know it, but they show you what happens. And they show you that he sees it. It makes this character so much more endearing. 
And it adds such a layer to this story that I think this is where, and I don't think it matters how many times you've seen the movie, I think this is where the movie really finally starts to take off. Right, especially because when they land in this scene where you learn about Gribble's backstory, they have now had to fall through the trash chute a third time as a means to escape. So Milo finds the time capsule, goes back up to rescue him from the firing squad with the help of Key, and then they fall to the trash chute again, and then the males help them escape through the tunnels into this absolutely gorgeous cave setting. Yeah, it's almost like an abandoned temple. Exactly. I kind of wish that after the firing squad, they had just fell right there because that's where this started getting unnecessarily convoluted. Like, how many times are you going to draw? And this is where you did feel every bit of there's only two scenes. But now they pay off on it because you've got this gorgeous third world that they've created. Um, and I think you did have to establish that they are working with the males a little bit because those are going to come back into play. Right. But um, I also think that this was the perfect placement for Gribble's backstory because I was thinking about it and I was like, well, what if they had started us in the 80s and showed Gribble's mother's abduction and, and that's how we learn what the Martians are doing and then it time jumped to Milo. But I don't think that that really would have served the story any better because we're just going to be like, okay... It's the 80s. They've taken this mother. The Martians are clearly doing this for a while. And then we're going to land with Milo and his mother. And again, that's going to cause a whole bunch of issues because he's so unlikable. But um, I don't think we would have cared about it as much if we didn't know who Gribble was and, and have seen his struggle and his survival at this point. Well, right. Other than move the story along, I think it does make him a stronger character. And I think that this is sort of my issue with Gribble in the very beginning. And it's not until, again, it's not until the second view. I'm sorry that I'm repeating myself, but I can't freaking help it. It's not until the second viewing that I realize he's not just a child for the sake of being a funny character. He is literally an overgrown child. Right. He has been forced to get older and survive, but he has, he is lacking the essential human element of growing up. And that's what makes him an even better character. It's what makes him an even stronger character. Well, it's what makes him a more endearing character. This serves so well, not, to, not just to the story, but to him, I can't understate how important this is. It's as important as them finding this artwork in this temple because now we are starting to flesh out some backstory and we see that there were families. So, yeah, it, 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 starts, to, it starts to peel the layers back, but because we don't know what's going on, it also creates an entire other set of problems and questions. Well, we kind of do know what's going on at this point. This is a really heavy scene now that we're getting into it. It's not just the emotional part of Gribble's backstory, but it's the realization that Key has when Milo explains to her that this is how it used to be here. And, and at one point, Martians did have families and you were raised by parents. Um I thought that was incredibly interesting. And even though this film is celebrating its 10th anniversary, it's incredibly timely the way that things are or, or 
people are trying to bury certain things that happen instead of learning from them. Right. Yeah, exactly. So now we go up to the silo. Key fake arrests both Milo and Gribble. They overtake mission control. It is wild to actually see on a surveillance camera how they are just ripping the males away from the females and handing the females to the nanny bots. It's very startling to actually see. Agreed. It's a rough scene to watch, especially because, you know, they they did the Martian design so cute when they're babies. So to see them taken away from their mothers like that, it's it's pretty sad. Yeah, they kind of look like Galaxy Quest, but without the vicious part of Galaxy Quest. Right. When when they turn. But the movie then gets very lighthearted again because Gribble now is and, and you could tell that Gribble is kind of in a weird sort of way we'll talk about this in a second he's kind of attracted to key and they've just out now it happens now they out and out say it in this scene where he has to use voice recognition to help ignite the boosters on the rockets of the escape ship so he's using his own name and she says what are you doing and he explains he goes you know if i said key it wouldn't work, except maybe it would to ignite a rocket and start an engine because keys start an engine. And, like, I know it sounds awkward. You're probably starting to blush as I'm saying all of this, which is the great payoff in this scene because she goes, oh, look, you can change color too. He is beat red from blushing. It's very funny. It's sort of a, it's sort of a sweet scene in many ways, but is it too awkward between the human and the alien? I don't think so at all. I don't, you know, and normally my wheels would be turning at a point like this because I'm, I'm thinking, you know, how is he getting water and all that stuff? But at face value, this is where you really lean into the comedy of the whole situation because she doesn't know any better. She just realizes that he's he's blushing and she doesn't understand why. She doesn't understand embarrassment. Um but she loves color. I, I thought it was just such clever dialogue and such a, a funny interaction between the two of them. Absolutely. Now, the mom is in the extraction machine, right? Because here's the weird thing. The movie spends a lot of time setting itself up, but once you get to the meat of the movie, it actually moves very fast. So it's kind of interesting pacing. I don't want to call it jagged. And there is a very clear first, second, and third act, but the pacing to get through all of them. Am I am I right in saying this? Did you feel the same way that act one, act one moves pretty quick. Act two, while it doesn't necessarily feel slow, it drags a little bit. And then act three is just in turbo drive. Agreed. Yeah, because for an hour and a half movie, it does feel like it drags like the film overall doesn't drag but in places it certainly feels like it does like i feel like act one is 15 minutes act three is 15 minutes and then the second act is, is an the, hour is an hour it's i would the agree entire with middle of the movie i would agree with that. so we get now to really it's the apex of the third act where the mom is in the extraction machine there are multiple lenses that are pulling the sunlight in and that's what heats the machine up and 
what I love here is that as she's in this extraction machine and she's strapped down, the machine starts to develop a spike that is going to go to her head. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think this was a cap tip to the 80s sci-fi film Invaders from Mars. Because in Invaders from Mars, that is a film, if you've seen it, it's a Toby Hooper film, it's got Karen Black. In that film, the aliens have set up underground in basically a sand pit, and they are sucking people down, and they're basically giving them lobotomies. Using this spike, they strap them down, and a spike goes into the back of their head, basically where the where the head meets the the uh, where the skull meets the spine, and that's where they're basically giving them lobotomies, and they're making them servants to the aliens. Mm-hmm. That is almost exactly what this machine is, and I love this cap tip. I would find it hard to believe that something that specific taking place on Mars is not a pull from that movie. Right, but at the same time, it doesn't feel derivative. No, it doesn't. I'm not sitting here going, this is a ripoff, because they they one-up it. They gave us more of a reason for it. Correct. Um, You get the scene with the helmet now, okay? Because, obviously, they're in outer space. There's no oxygen. So they have these helmets on that are helping them breathe. And... Milo has his, he's got his mom's, he saved her from the machine, he puts his on, she puts hers on. Gribble gave him the extra one. Right. When he sent Milo out to save her. Correct. And they get fired upon by the supervisor. The helmet breaks Milo's. His mom takes hers off, puts it on him, breaks the handle off so that Milo cannot remove it, and basically passes out while she is smiling. And Milo really starts to freak out. Mom, Mom, you have to come home with me. Mom, Mom. I'll be honest with you. I think this scene is a bit overacted. I think it's very repetitive. Yet it still strikes a chord, which I think is a compliment oddly enough, to the acting, even though it's overacted, but more so than anything else, the animation. And I think a lot of that comes from the stop-capture animation that they used because there's so much emotion in Milo's face that as, as great as Pixar is and as great as Disney animation is, I'm not sure that you get that level of depth without this sort of filmmaking. And the, yeah, the full range of emotion. Um, I completely agree with everything you said. Uh, I I do agree that Milo gets a little repetitive, but you can overlook it because of the emotional depth of this scene. And it's a credit to what I what I love about it is that the mom has been unconscious this entire time. She's barely had two seconds to wrap her mind around what is going on, and she just goes into mom mode and does whatever she needs to do to save him. And how appropriate is it that Gribble is able to locate the helmet that he he had intended to use for his own mother and he gives it to Milo's mom. I love this 
full moment for Gribble specifically. Same. And it's completely unexpected because you forget. I mean, you don't forget his backstory, but at this point, there's so much going on. You don't realize that that was something that he had left behind when he tried to save his own mob. So I love that there is this full circle moment for him and he got to finish what he started. Now you've got the supervisor that gets exposed by Key. I mentioned it before, but it bears repeating again, I believe. They never really give you a good reason why she did any of this. This is, I think, my biggest gripe with the movie, even after multiple viewings, and I don't think it matters how many times I'm going to see this. I said it before and I will say it again. Her excuse for why she did it is basically because I felt like it. You don't know... What's her backstory? What, what scorned her so badly that this is what she wanted to do. What what led her to behave this way? How old is she? Because she is the only person that seems to remember how things used to be. There's no under, there's no other elders on this planet. I mean, I th- maybe that adds an element too. Like did she did she kill the elders? Did she banish the elders? How did she come into power and brainwash Every person there to this point, none of this gets answered. None of it. I don't know that I needed a full-blown backstory for her, but all she's doing is standing there screaming and ranting and raving. And we only know what her real reason is because we did the second viewing, because we started researching a little bit more when we realized that she's doing this to protect them from being discovered by the human race. So I can give it a pass now knowing why she did all of this. And I don't need much more backstory than that. But in the moment, it's just at face value, a power hungry villain. And for a movie that's done so well up to this point, that was kind of disappointing that you didn't get enough reasoning so it doesn't land as hard as it should. Correct. Now we get back to the planet Earth. Milo and his mom get off the ship and Gribble, he steps off, he kind of looks around, he's back on Earth, and he decides to go back to Mars with Key. I have no problem with that decision at all. Same. I wasn't surprised by his decision at all, but at the same time, he did earn that second chance. So it's just odd that because he was so lonely on Mars, he didn't want to try and utilize his new lease on life. I mean, obviously now it's kind of established that he does have a companion in key and whether that's romantic or otherwise it doesn't really matter because now at least you know that he's not going to be lonely but he certainly earned the right to get his life back and it's weird that he didn't take it yeah but what life does he have that's got the question no family. he has no family his mom was a single mother his mother's gone all he has is key at this point Now, this begs the question, because Gribble, while he is one of the heroes, and while I think he's the best character in the movie, 
is not the main character. Could we have finally found a Disney film where, in the traditional sense, it doesn't kill a parent? Milo has his father. We see him at the end of the movie. Milo saves his mom. Yes, Gribble now has no parents, but Gribble's not the main character. You know what I'm saying? It's like in Bambi, it's not like Bambi has his parents, but Thumper doesn't have his. There always seems to be a theme we know where Disney is bumping off parents left and right. It's basically every film, but it happens to the title character or it happens to the main character. Does this break the mold or because poor Mrs. Ribble is gone, does it continue the trend? What do you think? Uh, wow, that's a really interesting point. Uh, no, I think it breaks the mold because I do get what you're saying. While Gribble stole the show entirely, he's still not the main character. It's not his movie, right? I mean, this is, after all, this is Milo's movie. It is Milo's journey. It is about his relationship with his mother. Yeah. But I'll give you that. I mean, th- there was still apparent death. There's room for debate here. I'm just wondering if it's different because it, it's a secondary character that it happens to. But a very strong secondary character. You could even argue, and this is where it will the, the line will get very blurred, you could argue that it's a buddy movie. I mean, really, at the roots, it's a hero's journey, but... Yeah, because because Gribble really is a subplot to all of this. Yeah, you can let us know what you think on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio or email us monorealradio at gmail.com. We want to get your take on that. Let's move on to these characters a little bit. All right, let's talk about the characters. Let's talk about the cast. Yes. This is a pretty big cast here. For a movie that was so under the radar, I mean, they really got some names in here. Starting with Milo. The, a Milo, to me, in terms of casting, is the most interesting. Right. Because it's the stop motion, it's, or, or it's the motion, motion capture, capture, right? It's the motion capture. So you have an actor that's got the sensors on his face. And Seth Green, as an adult, plays Milo, but he doesn't voice him. Seth Dusky is the voice of Milo and dubs it over. So that kind of lends the question or asks the question, why not just have a child in the motion capture? And I'll, I'll kind of ask you, is it, is it a labor thing? Is, is it that, that a child actor, due to labor laws, can't be on set that long? Because I would imagine this is a longer-than-average production schedule. I'm just trying to figure out why you would take an adult, Seth Green of all people, who, meanwhile, he nailed it. I mean, his, his, his expressions are spot on. Why they went with an adult rather than just use a child? I, I have an idea. Let's, let's dial it back a okay. little bit. So this, if, for anyone that's interested in seeing it, this does play out over the credits. Uh, they show the making of this film, and it's not just the motion capture on the face. It is full-blown body suits. So these actors did this whole film full out, back to front, almost as if it were a play, and then they just 
dubbed the animation over them. So Seth Green did do Milo's vocals, but I think they realized after the fact that he sounded too old. So that's why they decided to go with an actual child actor for the voice. Um, But I I don't think, I I think Seth Green was perfect casting. Um, I think part of that is because of his size. He's not a tall guy. Uh, So I think that that's why they went with an adult because they also did a lot of physical stunts. They were hanging the actors from wires. They were rolling them down pads to to simulate all of the falls down the hills and things like that. So I think it might have been a little bit too intense for a child to do. And that's why they went with a smaller adult. But I think Seth Green was perfect, especially because he is so expressive in the face. Like to me... It, it's funny that we get Milo because to me, if Seth Green were a character, he'd be Sid from Toy Story. Yes. Yeah, I can see that. Um, and not that Milo looks too much different from Sid, but I think that what they did with the motion capture is just incredible. And I, I love Seth Green in this role. And um, yeah, I don't think his voice would have served well for the character. That was something that I was wondering before I realized they had done a second casting, I thought maybe they had recorded him and um, just altered the pitch on his voice and and manipulated it to sound like a little boy. Now, Milo is a character. Seth Green aside. Does he ever really get his redemption? I think that's the million-dollar question. It is. He learns his lesson because when Dad comes home, he takes out the trash um. Well, remember, he takes it out, but then he blows it away with the laser he took that's back from right. Mars. That's so right. He doesn't even make it all the way to the trash can. So so in that regard, no. Because he's still, he, he had this epic journey, but he's still acting the exact same way. The only thing that he's learned is to value his parents more. Which I suppose is the important part of the film more than do your chores. But I agree. You can still be a brat. This is a character, whereas Gribble's story needed to be 360, and it very much was, this character needed to be a 180. Yes. And I feel like he's further than a 180, but not so far that he's a 360. I feel like he's sort of in that gray area in between, and the only reason why is because he has valued his parents now. Yeah, because just because you know you're mean? listening to them and doing as you're told, he didn't have the attitude adjustment. That's what it is. He had the mental adjustment, but that doesn't make him a nice kid. Correct. Now, he's who he was with a space blaster. Yeah, basically. And he loves his mom a little bit more. That's basically what it is. Gribble. I was going to wait until the end... But I don't want to anymore. He is hands down my favorite character in this movie, and he has become one of my favorite Disney characters ever. So I wrote the same thing down. I think that Gribble may be, up to this point in time, in terms of Disney characters, the most underappreciated character in any film we have discussed. No, no, there's one more. There's one more. Ash Popham is is at the top of that list. I think Gribble is right behind him. 
I think the difference is Summer Magic has been forgotten about over time. This film wasn't forgotten about because you didn't even know about it. Mm. Because it was a box office bomb. Against a $150 million budget, it made $39 million. And at the time of its release, was number 22 on the list of biggest box office bombs in cinematic history. That's why nobody knows who Gribble is, and that's why he's underappreciated. But he's on that list. And he is one of my favorite characters. By far. Now, I think, other than Dan Fogler, who is perfect. He's so perfect. It's the story. It's the story of Gribble. It is that 360 moment. It, it's, it's, the, it's the funny. It's the sad. It's the hero. It's the redemption. And I think that at times, that's why I'm not as forgiving with other elements of this film because they did it so well here. It's it's not just that, though. I mean, he is such a great character. He is so fully developed. He is so much fun. But he is equally as important to the story. And not just because of his role in stepping up and his character arc. I mean, the way that they use him to push the story forward is just so well done. It's that perfect blend of, of character and story. And I think... I agree with you. He's totally underrated. And Dan Fogler, um, he's he's a much more well-known actor now since he was in Fantastic Beasts. Uh, but before that, he was in the Goldbergs and... Uncle Marvin. And Uncle... Yeah, he was Uncle Marvin. And he was also in... He was in Fanboys, that, I think, yes, which we've talked about a lot on this show. That's the one that I'm thinking of. So he was totally a lesser-known actor. But, I mean, to me, this is probably his best performance. Yeah. How and crazy, nobody knows about how it. How crazy just, is that? It's such a shame. I do love him as Uncle Marvin, but I mean, yeah. D. Lorian. <laughs> it's so good. I yeah. mean, yeah, he's he has become such an established and respected actor, and I think that I think the more you see of him, I think he actually, I think that he is going to become one of the more well-known and respected actors of our time, because I think he's so versatile. I hope so. I hope people stop sleeping on him. Let's talk about versatility for a minute. Key is played by Elizabeth Harnoy. I might blow your mind right now. I don't know. Probably because I really don't know much about her. Or at least I think I don't know much about her. Right. You think you don't. You've seen her a million times. And most of you, of a certain age, born in the 80s, raised in the 90s, or born in the late 70s and raised in the 80s, you've seen her a hundred times. Because this was not her first role with Disney. Uh Uh-oh. She played Alice in Adventures in Wonderland. Oh my god, I knew she looked familiar. Yep, I've seen her a million times. (sighs) What a good... You want to talk about 360 moments. Wow. What a great moment. What a what a great piece of information to fall upon. 
And no wonder that she was so good with something like this because she's had clearly a lot of experience bouncing off of imaginary sets. Right. I mean, and she was doing that at the age of five and six years old. It's amazing. I still remember that show intro. Yep. Where she goes through the mirror. Mm -hmm. We watched it all the time on the Disney Channel. Oh, my gosh. All right. That's not that's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. I thought I thought I was going to be really embarrassed. No, I. most people probably don't know off the top of their head that that was her first big Disney role. But yeah, I, I thought that was worth mentioning. Mindy Sterling as the supervisor. Fire the laser! Exactly. Frau Farbissina. So now you've got two big characters out of Austin Powers. Teaming up again. Teaming up again. She's great. I mean, yeah, she, she's just screaming and making noise. That's all you need her to but do. That's all you need her to do. She's great. And Disney bring, uh, brings back Joan Cusack to play Milo's mom. Obviously, we all know her as Jessie from uh, Toy Story 2 and Toy Story 3. Because there were no more Toy Stories after the third. <laughs> she, but she's good. I mean, she's just good in the role. Yeah, I feel like she got to do a little bit more. I mean,. Not that Jessie's not emotional, because when she loved me, my oh God. Oh, my God. Um, but, you know, to do Jessie, it's all of that rootin' tootin', a lot of yeah. screaming and yelling and high energy. I feel like she got to do a little bit more of a range of emotion here. Yeah, and she was good. She was great. Yeah, she was really good. Do you have anything else, or do we want to go to our final review of this film? I do want to talk a little bit more about the animation, but this is kind of my final review. This film is absolutely stunning. And what they achieved with the motion capture is truly unbelievable. And I think that I have a greater appreciation for it after seeing that scene over the ending credits and how they did it. Because the story is very good, but without seeing what a technological achievement this is, I kind of feel like that's why you're like, why do we care? I think once you do see all of the great effort that went into making this movie, it's even more mind-blowing. And I feel like it, it's just so worth watching for that alone. Just just to see the ending credits and just to see how these actors are emoting and to see how that does play right back into their characters and, and to see how it all comes together is great on top of a really fun story. So for my final synopsis, is this a Disney classic? No, not by any stretch of the imagination, but I certainly think that it is unfairly buried in the depths of the Disney catalog. And whether that has to do with, you know, opening box office numbers and people writing it off, I think that that's kind of an unfair thing to do because it's so much better than than the return on investment that it got. And this is something that, you know, this is why Disney Plus is here and this is what you hope for, that a film like this is going to get its due because people are going to stumble across it. And I certainly, I'm going to do my part to champion it because I, I think it's incredible. So I think in conclusion, the first time I saw the movie, I thought it was awful. I, it, it was not holding my interest that well. 
I did not like Milo. I thought Gribble was funny, but at times too childish. And I didn't understand why any of this was happening. Other than it's called Mars Needs Moms, and that's why it's happening. Upon a second viewing, it answered a lot of questions. It filled a lot of gaps. And it got better, and it got better, and it got better. Did it make Milo more likable? I'll say it made him less likable. Or sorry, it made him less dislikable. So take that for what it's worth. Some will say, well, that sounds like he's more likable. Well, he's less dislikable. It's not the same. It's not the same thing. Gribble, I've already told you. He's on the list with Osh Popham. I think that if this movie had a clearer motivation, it would be a Disney classic. Because I think the rest of it is that good. I think the animation is that good. I think the comedy is that good. I think, for the most part, the drama is that good. A more, ende- a more endearing male lead and a clearer motivation, and this movie is an absolute classic in my mind. But we're interested in knowing what you have to say. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. Hey guys, my name is Mike. I listen to Jackie and Sean's podcast every week on my commute into work. So I reached out to Jackie, and she helped me put together the perfect getaway. I did a four-night Disney cruise ship, and she was able to answer every question that I threw at her. She put together the perfect dates and an insurance plan that made the whole experience stress-free. She was able to help me with little tips and tricks, like you can get a Mickey Mouse bar delivered to you any time of the day. And I think that was a mistake, because now I put about 10, 15 pounds on. I'll definitely be using Jackie again in the future. Thanks for everything. We can now start booking those cruises for 2022. So if you would like some completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, you can get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets, or you can email me directly at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. News this week is brought to you by Karma and Kismet. If you're looking for that little Disney fix, perhaps it's home decor or art or stationery, or maybe you need some custom invitations for a special event that you are hosting, Kelly will take care of you. And listeners of Monoreal Radio get a 10% discount with the code Monoreal10 at checkout. Be sure to check out her website, karmaandkismetdesigns.com. That's karma, the letter N, kismetdesigns.com. So we've it's so like kind of weird. We have we have a new movie release that is like <laughs> showing in theaters right now. How exciting. A year and a half later. But yes, Raya and the Last Dragon opened this past weekend, both in theaters and as a premium access purchase on the Disney Plus app. We are waiting until next week when we can go to the movie theater to see it. Um, And I'm really excited to see it in the movie theater because the latest trailers, especially after speaking with Andrew Ford, the way that he kind of describes everything... I understand restrictions, what they are, and, and and comfort levels being what they are. I don't think this is a movie I want to see on a 42-inch screen. I want to see this in a movie theater. Well, we've talked about it. I mean, our main priority is supporting the theaters and making sure that we're, we're going to see these films so that we don't lose the opportunity to do so 
down the line. Uh, but this one I'm particularly excited for. I feel like it's the most action-packed animation we've seen in a long time. It almost feels like like an animated Star Wars, which I know they've done, but just because of all the sword fighting and the different terrains that they're on, that that's the vibe I'm getting. So I'm really excited for it. And I'm, I'm really excited for another strong female lead because the last one was Moana. And uh, spoiler alert, we're not fans. <laughs> but if you guys want to go and hear what Andrew had to say about his latest project that he worked on, of course, Raya, you can go and listen to our bonus interview with him. And he actually, uh, he had a conversation with us about Zootopia. And that is on that episode as well. So you guys got some bonus content last week. You can go back and listen to that. I think just as important, if not more, th- 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 than the news that we have a film that's been released in the theaters is that effective April 1, Disneyland in California can finally reopen. Get me a cozy cone. They picked a hell of a date to do that. But yeah. it's too mean. I don't think this is a joke. Like that's after what everyone's been through. Like that's really mean. So the theme parks in California, if they are in what are they called the red tier, which is the most at risk tier, they can operate at 15 percent. When they advance to the orange tier, they can go to 25. And when they get to yellow, which is the least restrictive as of now, 35 percent. So I um. I'm sort of surprised. One thing in particular. We don't have, as of right now, any fireworks, parades, or any stage performances in Orlando. Obviously, Florida is far less restrictive than California, but Disney is still Disney. So announcing that they are going to have live stage shows with limited capacity upon this reopen while they are still waiting to get the shows going in Orlando is a little bit of a head scratcher. I mean, it could be sort of a supply and demand thing with Disneyland being far more the local park than Walt Disney World is. But it's sort of a head scratcher to me that they are going to run with it out there before they run with it in Florida. Right, especially after... I mean, California really only just got their restaurants back open. Um, So you're right. It is puzzling that they would allow it in California when everything has been closed for so long and they barely got these parks open. Why they're doing things where people are going to sort of congregate. However, 15% is not a lot. I think that's probably a good place to start, being that it is a local park, and I'm sure people are going to be obviously excited to go, but locals can kind of drop in and out for the day, for the weekend, and that's probably enough to cycle a bunch of people through. I'm more thinking in terms of the logistics as far as Disneyland is smaller, so maybe they are doing these stage shows because you can't have the cavalcades. And because if they're opening up the rides, those queues are much smaller. So it's going to be very difficult to put the six feet between people and not have them spilling out into the road. Mm, Yeah, that could be true. 
So they need more of a people eater just to alleviate some of the pressure. Exactly. That could be. We want to know what you guys have to say. Are you California residents that are going to jump at the opportunity to go to Disneyland? Are you a cast member that maybe is starting to go back to work at Disneyland? We'd love to hear from you guys, too, because we've been thinking about you this entire time. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you guys for joining us this and every week on the show. Don't forget, like, subscribe, and rate on your podcast platform of choice. Of course, you can follow us on all that social media. I just mentioned that. TikTok as well, we are on there. And if you need links to any of the social media or the show, it's online 24-7 at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.